American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. In part one of this podcast, Fritz Umbach and Kojo Day of John Jay College, City University of New York, speak to New York City teachers about the diversity of African systems of slavery and the slave trade. This talk took place on February 8, 2008 at the Graduate Center. As you might have guessed, I'm Fritz, um, and my colleague is Kojo. And Kojo and I became friends in this fabulous program at John Jay, it's John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where they pair scholars from different disciplines to teach one topic. And we immediately hit upon the idea of teaching the transatlantic slave trade because it was an ideal way to combine the history that I knew about world history and the anthropology that Kojo knew about West Africa into a single course. And much of today's talk, in fact, builds upon our experience teaching the history of the transatlantic slave trade to undergraduates. And when Americans think or talk about the transatlantic slave trade, they often tell the story, perhaps understandably so, with America at its center. And told that way, the Middle Passage and Africa are merely preludes to a story whose soul lies in this continent. At the same time, once you marginalize Africa in that way, it's very easy to imagine that slavery and the slave trade, as Americans talk about it, emerges precisely because Africa was weak. The slave trade seems a symbol of, the product of African weakness. And in today's talk, we want to re-examine those two assumptions. One, that the story of the transatlantic slave trade is primarily an American story, and that two, it's primarily a story of African weakness. In fact, as we'll discuss later in the talk today, slavery in America and the transatlantic slave trade to America was a sideshow of a much larger process. At the same time, slavery in the slave trade occurs not because Africa is weak, but because she is strong. It is the power of Africans over Europeans that leads to the transatlantic slave trade. And when we think about both of those phenomena, that the Amer Amer slavery in America and the slave trade to the Americas was a sideshow, and that Africa was powerful for the entire time period of the transatlantic slave trade, we come to realize that the peculiar institution of the American South and the North earlier is both a whole lot less peculiar than we thought it was and a whole lot more peculiar for some really unexpected reasons. And one of the ways that Kojo and I get at how ethnocentric American students' perceptions of slavery are is to ask them at the beginning of the semester, what percentage of all of the slaves that were trafficked out of Africa end up in the United States? And like a Super Bowl, we'll take guesses, reward the highest one. All right. 5%. All right, well, now you've already ruined my point, okay? <laughs> Forget that ever happened. When students guess, that never occurred. But you're absolutely right. For the transatlantic slave trade, it's 
If we add the other slave trades out of Africa, that figure falls down to 2%, maybe lower. When students guess, they say 90%. I've had students sitting right next to Caribbean students, clearly of African descent, and saying 100%, ignoring uh, the vast experience of, the, of slavery and the slave trade in the Caribbean. And I, it is both good history and good pedagogy to expand our vision of slavery and the slave trade to the entire world. It's good history because it's more accurate, and it's good pedagogy because it now reflects the increasingly diverse classroom in the New York metro area. It includes a much broader swath of the human experience than just merely the United States. So the way we're going to do this is Kojo is going to talk about slavery in the context of Africa before European contact. And then I'll pick up from there and talk about slavery elsewhere in the world and the transatlantic slave trade. And we'll look closely at some documents that in fact served as the basis for this summary of the captain's log that we looked at earlier. And so Kojo, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. And while Kojo talks, I'll be his secretary and draw on his maps. Thank you, uh, Fritz. Uh, as, uh, Fritz mentioned, I'm anthropologist, so I'm going to direct my remarks to answer this question. Uh, what have anthropologists found about slavery? Most of you are historians, and I am an anthropologist. We anthropologists came to the subject late, but we found quite some things that will be of interest to you, and certainly, I think, uh, for your students also. So my remarks will be directed at this question, what have anthropologists found? And then specifically to West Africa. In West Africa, for example, what have anthropologists found? Well, as you know, anthropologists, we examine social institutions. So we look at contemporary institutions and take it from there uh, backwards, and then we can also forward it later. And what have anthropologists discovered? This is a subject, again, as I said, anthropologists came to it a bit later because we were also, we also thought that slavery began in the 16th century. But no, some French anthropologists led us to look a bit deeper and we found that Indeed, slavery has existed in West Africa long before Europeans uh, came on the scene. And that Africans had also, even with the Ottoman Empire, engaged in uh, trade that has involved also uh, slaves. And that uh, sometimes we are shocked to find out that some even slaves from the Ottoman Empire came to West Africa. You know, some of your students will be shocked to hear that white slaves were to be found even in areas of West Africa brought by uh, the connection between Africa and... The map here shows the extent of what's known as the trans-Saharan slave trade, moving slaves from West Africa to North Africa and the Islamic Middle East around 1400. Thank you, Fritz. Okay, so 
And also, I think uh, the significance of looking at uh, slavery within the African context, and for a minute, let's put away the politics of it, politics in quotes, is that it helps us to see that slavery is really a globalized, I heard uh, it being mentioned before, a globalized type of phenomenon that goes way back, and then we can uh, tackle it with all our energies. And also, even to contemporary times, slavery does exist. If you look at some social relationships that exist in West Africa, you know, situations of uh, polygamy, poor marriages, you know, is it, is it really even appropriate for us to say <laughs> marriage, poor marriage? Because uh, for the women involved in some of these type of relationships, clearly it is a slavery type of situation. And then you look at the fact that the United States have always had chattel slavery, defining all forms of other uh, slave uh, occurrences, you know. So, again, it's refinement of the whole concept of uh, slavery that anthropologists are making contributions to our understanding of slavery. And then our interpretation that, uh, or reinterpretation, I should say, that slavery did not begin in the 16th century. Way back to the 10th century and 13th, you've heard about the Ghana Empire, the Songhai Empire. Uh, first, could you? Yes, Ghana Songhai. You know, there were slaves there, and there were raids that were made to other countries to collect slaves, you know, and uh, sell them to Northern Africa, where then they were also sold to other parts of Southern Europe. So th this is really, uh, for some of you, I I'm sure will be uh, revolutionary, uh, the idea that slavery had existed in Africa and between Africans for such a very long, long time. And I refer you to some uh, works by Patterson from uh, Harvard, the sociologist, the Jamaican guy. Um, I've forgotten his first name, Patterson. He's a sociologist. Orlando, thank you, Fris. Yeah, who has also done some work in this area. So what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that Slavery is a historical subject, indeed, but you can come look at it uh, from other disciplines, not the least uh, uh, anthropology. And uh, what they are, anthropologists are uncovering is fascinating, fascinating. In uh, West Africa, you find another form of slavery uh, called the ritual type of slavery. You know, and you find these slaves being engaged in uh, work, very lucrative work in the mines, even where I come from originally. I come from Ghana, you know, where the Ashantis are. And yeah, always. Yes, always, certainly. Uh, stretching all the way to uh, Nigeria because they came from Igbo land to Ghana, yes. So again, what am I saying? I'm just making 
notes, just comments for, uh, for you to, to pursue further with your students, you know, and not to uh, go by the old notion that slavery began in the uh, 16th century, but rather slavery has been part and parcel of the social system throughout the Saharan area, to the West African area. Um, but I, I wanted to make a comment that uh, Stephanie, who is sitting at the, uh, the desk where I am, kept on telling us that, for example, slavery, we have to look at uh, s slavery from the West Indies to North Africa, for example, which is quite true. You know? So again, the slavery is not only uh, from West Africa to the United States, and the numbers are even so small, but to the West Indies, and then from the West Indies to the United States, for example. So it turns our whole uh, knowledge of slavery upside down, or broadens it also, you know? So these are some of the things that I think uh, is necessary for you to uh, introduce to your students uh, for the, to get a better, a better uh, understanding. That also makes the subject of slavery highly, highly complex. You know, it's not a narrowly uh, historical distance that starts from the 16th century, but uh, about a rather broad uh, subject. You've heard about the Ashantis, uh, the Ashantis in Ghana. Uh, Fritz, could you... Uh, Oh, yes, the Ashantis, and their involvement uh, and their conquest of other uh, tribes or ethnic groups in West Africa that stretches all the way from Ghana to Ivory Coast, to Ivory Coast, yeah, the, uh, which, yeah, all, all of that area that Fritz uh, has uh, diagrammed over there, you know, the Ashantis were involved with them, and what was the nature of the relationship, you know? In terms of uh, the hierarchy of uh, lineages, you know, uh, this introduces or makes it uh, more clear about the nature of the uh, uh, slave relationship that existed wherever the uh, Ashantis went and tried to dominate the local population. Okay, so again, anthropologists are bringing in more uh, data from their research to tell us that slavery is rather a human institution. It's not limited to one ethnic group. As I heard earlier, you know, everyone is involved, so to speak. It's quite inappropriate. I think it was you who mentioned it there. Yes, so appropriate. A simple phrase, but indeed, it covers the whole... Uh, phenomenon or subject of slavery. And this is what you find in uh, West Africa. And again, in West Africa, whom do you see? You see Africans enslaving other Africans. I guess uh, this is basically my message uh, to you, and uh, I will give uh, the floor to Fritz, who has the details as a historian about this, but I wanted you to know that uh, we as anthropologists or students of anthropology have also been uncovering data that supports uh, the proposition that I made that slavery had been endemic in our societies way, way before Europeans uh, 
came to our region. To piggyback briefly on Kojo's remarks before addressing slavery elsewhere in the world, one way to think about slavery in Africa at this time is to think about just how diverse African societies were in the 15th, 14th centuries. And that there were as many forms of slavery in Africa as there were African cultural groups. And that means that the slavery varied depending on where you were in Africa. Social groups in Africa that lived far away from trade routes and therefore were not producing things for long distance trade tended to have forms of slavery that were more familial. Slaves were supplemental kin. They were additional siblings, additional children. And in some ways, that was a softer form of slavery. Although we need to keep in mind that people can be pretty hard on their folks. In those parts of West Africa, close to the trade routes, where social groups were in a position to produce things for long distance trade, slavery was much more like the slavery that you're familiar with from the American experience. It's chattel slavery. Conditions were very brutal. In the Akan regions, for example, where there's a lot of gold mines, the gold mines were enclosed workplaces. The slaves were held within a pen to work the gold mines. They might not have lasted any more than a year or two. Slaves always came from outside of the social grouping. So the Akan, that's the Ashanti Kingdom and the Akan peoples, they got their slaves from Benin. Right? And in fact, you couldn't work the gold mines unless you were a slave. It was a way to guarantee that um, only the wealthy would participate in the gold trade. How many slaves trafficked in this? It's very difficult to know, but we know that the trade starts as early as 500 AD. We have clear records of, sla of the slave trade as early as 500 AD. Some are going north to the Islamic lands, and some are staying within West Africa for the production of goods. So we often hear in the United States that slavery in Africa was different than American slavery. And that's true. Some forms of slavery in Africa were different than American forms of slavery. But many were much the same. And we have to keep in mind the diversity of West Africa at this time. OK, so let's take a step back a moment and look at slavery in Europe and Asia. If we were to drop in to Europe 1300, 1400, we'd see extensive slave trade to parts of southern Europe. Renaissance Italy, for example, filled with slaves. Where are they coming from and what are they doing? Part of this can be revealed in our word slave. What ethnic group does that sound like? Slavs, absolutely. We get our word for slave from the Slavic peoples. Because this part of Eastern Europe, right, the Slavic regions, this is sort of a shopping mall for slaves. It's the greatest source of human labor, slave labor in world history. Everyone is plundering this region for slaves. This is an extensive part of the European slave trade. What are they doing? Some are going into the households of elites in southern Europe. Some are being used um, for small-scale agricultural production. But the vast bulk of them are actually being trafficked out of Europe into Africa. The Islamic dynasties of North Africa, as is common to Islamic dynasties, 
had slave soldiers who did not reproduce. And this meant that there was an insatiable demand for slaves. And the Italians were more than willing to meet this demand for slaves in Africa by shipping other Europeans into Africa. Now, they're not Christians as far as the Western Europeans are concerned because they're Orthodox, but they're not particularly concerned about that either, and sometimes they're grabbing anybody they can get their hands on. The Genoese and the Venetians are the biggest slave traffickers, mostly going to Mamluk, Egypt here. At the same time, the Ottoman Empire is drawing upon the same sources for their military slaves. This is the state of slavery. It's not particularly extensive um, for domestic purposes in Europe around 1400. A dramatic shift happens, though, that's going to change the history of slavery and the history of the world in 1453. Anyone know the date? What happens in 1453? The fall of Constantinople, and the Ottoman Turks take Constantinople, blocking off this small, narrow passage, the Bosphorus. And at that point, the Europeans lose their access to their primary source of slaves. Right? It had been a Black Sea coastal trade slave, uh, slave trade. Suddenly, they're cut off from their slave source. This has a profound impact on Europeans, not just because it's cutting off their source of slaves, but because suddenly it's yet another blow against the Europeans, Christian Europe, and what they imagine to be this world struggle against Islam. They feel like they're the short end of a stick. The Muslims are sitting on top of these trade routes, which the Europeans think are giving the Islamic lands all their wealth. And so they begin a search to get to the gold that they think, that they know lies here. We talked about the gold, the Akan fields. They want to cut out the Muslim middlemen, go for the gold. And they begin to explore the west coast of Africa. By the middle of the 15th century, they're making their first incursions along the west African coast. Some things have happened in that process of exploring the west African coast. The Europeans come across the Atlantic islands, and this is their training school for new world slavery. They encounter these islands, and there's some native people there known as the Guanche. And while of all the people who've gotten the shaft from Europeans, the Guanche get it the worst, okay? Uh, the Europeans conquer the lands, they immediately enslave them, they destroy the culture, and in fact, all we have is about nine lines left of the Guanche language. But importantly, the Europeans set up plantations for sugar. Now, at the time, sugar wasn't the commodity that it is now. It's almost impossible to avoid sugar in your diet. Sugar, at this time, was something you would put in your will. It might be several weeks of wages to afford a spoonful of sugar. As my students say, it was the crack of the 15th century. Everyone wants it, okay? Um, Europeans had um, encountered sugar during the Crusades in the Levant, okay, the Mediterranean regions of the Holy Land. The Muslims had, Arabs had brought it from India, and the Europeans had developed a taste for sugar, because when they show up in the Crusades here in the Levant, Europeans are the backwards folks. They're from the provinces, okay? As my students like to say, they were from the Campo, all right? They were profoundly impressed by Arab and Islamic civilization, and sugar was one of the practices, one of the social luxuries 
that Europeans develop a taste for, and it's incredibly profitable to have sugar plantations. Okay. So as they're exploring the west coast of Africa, Europeans decide, well, this is what we'll do when we get to Africa. Right? When they discover the African coast, their intention is to do in Africa what they had done in the Atlantic islands. That is, conquer the land, enslave the inhabitants, and set up sugar plantations. It doesn't work out for them. Right away, the European ambitions are squashed by African military might. And to understand how and why, we have to have some sense, believe it or not, of geology. This is a map of coral reefs. And one of the interesting things about coral is that it almost never grows on the western edge of a continent. It's always on the eastern edge. And that means the shoreline of West Africa was very different than the shoreline of East Africa. In, West, in East Africa, let's see here, here's water, and there's coral, right? Make sense? There are natural harbors in East Africa. There are places you can land your ships, you can begin to have a maritime tradition. And East Africa has a profound maritime tradition. Here we have pictures of dows. This is off the coast of Zanzibar. Here's a dow under full sail. And these are deep ocean-going vessels. East Africa is integrated into a global trade network that stretches as far as China. East African archaeological sites are filled with Chinese porcelain, for example. They have deep trade routes everywhere, and they have a maritime naval tradition. West Africa, much different. No coral, and that means if here's the water, it gets shallow very, 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 very slowly. Visit West Africa in most places. You can walk a couple miles out into the water, and they're never going to get above your chest. European vessels were worthless in these conditions. But African vessels, they had adapted to the native maritime conditions. And they had superior war canoes. Now, these aren't canoes like you would imagine um, getting from L.L. Bean. Okay? These are huge vessels. They can carry 150 warriors with javelins. And right away, when the Europeans land on the West African coast, they're torn apart by the African canoes. They surround the vessels, they mess up the rigging, the, Afri the Europeans can't get close. By the way, here are some pictures of these canoes when I was visiting Ghana, coast of Ghana here. And the Europeans are forced to trade with the Africans on terms set by the African elite themselves. The Africans have the upper hand militarily. And so the Europeans learn not to bargain, not to take slaves by force, but rather negotiate with the local elites. For West Africans then, the European slave trade isn't anything new. It's an extension of that very elaborate, that very elaborate slave trade that they already had with the Islamic lands. There's nothing new about the slave trade. It shifts the trade to the coast as opposed to the trans-Saharan slave trade, but there's nothing new about it. And in fact, for the first 100, 150 years of European transatlantic slavery, starting in the 1450s, the Europeans are buying far fewer slaves than are the Muslim lands. It's not until 1550, 1575, we think that Europeans are buying more slaves than the Arab slave traders. More than that, 
Slavery is only a small part of the West African commerce. Europeans are there for other reasons. They initially come for gold, and not until 1650, 1675, somewhere along there, is slaves going to be the biggest chunk of trade with Africa. They're buying other things, fabrics, hides, beeswax, other goods. And in fact, there's not much that the Europeans have at first that the Africans want. European fabrics are undesirable, they're wool, not good for a hot climate. And so one of the important roles for Europeans in this time, the only competitive trade advantage they have is their boats. You might want to think of Europeans for the first 200 years of contact with Africa as the bus drivers of Africa. In fact, all of the slaves that are working the gold mines after about 1500 in, West, in the Akan region are brought by Europeans from Benin. Europeans, for the first you know, 100, 120 years, sell more slaves to other Africans than they do to Europeans. Okay? It's going to be a while before Europeans dominate the slave trade and before slavery dominates, or the slave trade dominates the trade with West Africa. At the time of the transatlantic slave trade, it's not the only slave trade. The trans-Saharan slave trade continues, as does the East African slave trade to Islamic lands. That goes on. We often think of the slave trade as being destructive to West African societies. And for some West African societies, it is very destructive. But for others, it builds the society. There would be no Ashanti kingdom without the slave trade. The foundation of some of the classic West African empires and kingdoms is in fact the slave trade. They would not exist without it. The Ghana, Mali, and Songhe are all prior, with the exception of Songhe, Ghana and Mali are all prior to extensive trade relations with Europe. Songhai's after the extensive trade connections with Europe, and we'll talk about what happens to the Songhai in a moment. Um, but the Ashanti Kingdom, the Dahomey Kingdom, all of these are kingdoms built upon the slave trade. We talked about Roots earlier as a film. It's an absolutely compelling film, but it misrepresents in many ways the nature of the slave trade. The slave trade worked to the benefit of African elites. They were not obliged to participate in it, and they certainly wouldn't have allowed the Europeans to go running through the hinterlands kidnapping people. They had the upper hand militarily. To think otherwise is to reduce Africans to passive helpless victims, and we know that's not the case. Okay? If Europeans had been able to do in West Africa what they had done in the Atlantic Islands, they would have. But, but Europeans have to set up plantations in the New World because Africans won't let them set them up in Africa. They have to traffic slaves to the New World because they can't enslave Africans in Africa. The very presence of African Americans in the United States is because Africa was strong. Africa forced Europeans to set up plantations elsewhere, forced them to traffic slaves. And it's not entirely clear that the slaves would have been African if Constantinople hadn't fallen to the Turks. If that event had never occurred, we can run a counterfactual that there might indeed have been New World slavery 
entirely with European slaves. In fact, after 1453, when Europeans are cut off from their source of slaves in Eastern Europe, it's not obvious that Africans are going to be the labor source. Africans are, in fact, the last group that Europeans use as slaves in the New World. First, they rely on subjugated groups within Europe, Jews out of the Inquisition. The Dutch, for example, um, the Dutch in Cape Town get their slaves from Asia. Portuguese in Japan purchase Japanese slaves. There's no notion that slavery and race are linked, okay? It's almost a quirk of history that slave, the transatlantic slave trade ends up being Africans. It's a byproduct of this search for gold and other products. How many European slaves end up in the New World? Hard to know, but we estimate about 50,000. How many European slaves end up in the New World before we settle on African slaves? I'm not talking here about indentured servants, but outright slaves purchased as slaves. That's about 50,000. Okay. It ends up being Africans in part because the trade arrangements are so beneficial for Europeans and Africans alike. One way to tell this story of the extent to which the transatlantic slave trade was conducted under terms set by the African elites themselves is to look at some unintentional evidence, the credit card receipts of the slave trade. So here we have a page from a captain's log from 1764. The captain is Isaac Hopkins. You might know him as an American historian because he becomes the first, in essence, admiral of the um, American um, Navy during the Revolutionary War. But this is 1764, before the Revolution. Isaac Hopkins is the captain. Joseph, Moses, Richard, and one other Brown, the Brown family, are the owners of the slave ship. And the ship is the Sally, okay? And so we're looking at unintentional evidence. And I love to do this with students because they get to see what you do as a historian. So what I want to do is read this closely out loud and look to see what it can tell us about how the slave trade was conducted on the ground on a daily basis. So December 23rd, and let's read it out loud. I think you have photocopies of this in your packet as well, if you can't see it on the board. What do we see? Went ashore, king. Uh, Wait, wait, what is this word? Yeah. You're right, that's three letters, but then there's two letters up there. You skip down to the next phrase and see if you can go back and then understand that. Under, absolutely. Under, okay. Under. It's a good guess, but just say it out loud. Palavar, anyone speak Portuguese? Palavar, what? Two. Communicate. Palavar is to speak. Under the Palavar tree. Imagine, we're on the coast of West Africa here. The sun is beating down. Where are you going to do your negotiations? Under the tree. And so there was always in every coastal region a Palavar tree where the negotiations between the African elites and the Europeans would take place. Went ashore to meet the king under the Palavar tree. Okay. Now, again, remember that in the 18th century, spelling hasn't been formalized yet, okay? They spell like our students spell, okay? You just spell it out, you sound it out phonetically, and you'll get there. So just say it out loud. What letter is this? A C, okay, C. A. 
N. There's another C A N C D. To say it out loud. Changed. Exchanged. Okay? Exchanged. Five. Say it out loud. That's an S. Keg. Kegs, absolutely. Exchanged five kegs, 14 flasks. Rum. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. And paid. What happens when you cross a border? What do you have to pay? Customs. Paid, this is customs, and, and this is a little complex. I'll tell you that this is ED here. ED, and that's an R. Received a cow as payment. Okay, remember, it's taken you six weeks to get to the African coast. How much food are you going to have left? None. Who are you going to depend on to get food? The African elites. The upper hand already begins. Who's imposing the tax? Africans or Europeans? Africans, absolutely. Okay. Have we gotten any slaves yet? No, but we've already paid customs. All right. Just say it out loud. Wait. Okay. Wait on the king. And? Okay, so, waited on the king. Who's in charge here? Who's waiting on whom? Okay, who, are the Europeans waiting on Africans or Africans waiting on Europeans? Europeans are waiting on the Africans, okay? The Africans are in control. And who determines the price? The king, okay? Now, just in case you're wondering, 112 gallons is a huge amount for a slave. The first slave bought was always at an exorbitant price. It's just the custom of the trade. Okay, continuing. And that's a name, so just say it out loud. Fidalgo? Toco, yep. Three hundred and sixty-nine, maybe four gallons of rum. Okay, we pay one customs, and now we've got to pay the king. The king doesn't show you, okay? Oh, you're right, it's 36 gallons. Good catch. Good catch. Do we have any slaves yet? No, we, um, we have one slave. Okay, but we've already paid 112 plus, 30, plus 36, okay? 40, 148, we've only got one slave. Then what happens? Yep, his customs. No, that, that's just he's making notations on the side. He's adding up this. We could just see him doing some math here on the side. Paid, his ki paid king's son his one barrel and ten flasks rum. Okay. So first the king takes his customs. Now the king's son has taken his customs. Okay. The Europeans are being milked here. Okay. And yet we only have one slave. Let's move on. 
Arger, we don't quite know what that word means, so let's skip over to the next one. Or, and in the 18th century, F's were S's. Well, you think it's an F, but it's actually an S. Constable, what's a constable? Police, okay, so first the government takes a cut, now the police are taking a cut, okay? Paid the king's arger or high constable. 25 barrels. Wait, wait, his? His customs. 25 barrels. Okay. Any slaves yet? Just the one lonely guy. Paid the geograph. Now let's imagine here, we're coming in, we're from Rhode Island, we're on the ship. Do we know the local coastline? Uh, it's a pilot, okay? An African gets on board and navigates the ship in to the closest place possible. Paid the, the geograph his customs. Have we gotten another slave yet? Nope, okay. Moving on to the, later that day. Okay, this is a bad transliteration of the Arabic. Anyone know their Arabic? This is Al-Qadi, the judge. Okay, so first the king takes his cut, then the, the government takes their cut, the police cut, take their cut, and now the religious establishment is taking their cut. Al-Qadi, okay? Paid the Al-Qadi. One flask rum. Okay. Now, historians, we have thousands of these pages, okay? We then compile all of those pages and we produce the database that takes all of this information from the ship's logs and compiles them into the searchable database. When you looked at this page, you were looking at information taken from ship's logs like this, okay? This is not unusual, right? We've got thousands of such pages. And then we can add up all that information and we can figure out what Europeans sold to buy the slaves. We've got two graphs here. The first one is from the beginning of the slave, um, well, 100 years into the slave trade. This is um, middle of the 16th century, and this is almost at the end of the slave trade um, in the early part of the 19th century. And so let's see what the Europeans were selling to get slaves. What would the abolitionists have us believe they were selling to get slaves? What's the, re the reputation? Trinkets, worthless items of no particular value. Or alcohol, guns, things of this, destructive things. Let's actually look what they were um, selling. What's the biggest chunk? Textiles. If we add up all of the textiles the Europeans were selling, figure out the, probably the roughly population of Africa, it's clear that the clothes weren't going to clothe the naked, right? It's a small fraction of all the clothes Africa, of the fabric Africa was importing at this time. This is luxury consumption. In fact, the Africans unwove the European fabrics and then rewove them into their own patterns. The kinti cloth that is famous from um, Kojo's native country of Ghana becomes colorful only with the slave trade. They unravel European fabrics and reweave them into their own patterns. Kinti cloth, a symbol of African independence, is in fact a product of the slave trade itself. Oh yeah, it's wool, it's wool. Okay, what else after that? Indian textiles. At this time in the world, India is the super powerhouse of fabric production. They beat the Europeans in quality and price. 
And the Africans would say, don't give us that European crap. Okay, we want the good stuff. Hook us up with the Indian fabrics. And over time, the per percentage of Indian fabrics goes up, okay? As Africans are able to exert more force in the exchange, they demand Indian textiles and not European textiles, okay? Now, one of the interesting um, items here is cowrie shells. Now, that's curious. What's a cowrie shell? You guys recognize this? We associate cowrie shells with African art. Here's a mask from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We think, ah, cowrie shells, authentically, traditionally African. In fact, cowrie shells only come from one place in the world, or the cowrie moneta, the Maldive Islands off the coast of India here, okay? Now, cowrie shells had long been used as a currency in Africa before the Europeans show up. They're aware of this fact, and they engage in long-distance trade. They bring the cowrie shells from India to Europe, where they're then re-exported to West Africa for the purchase of slaves. We estimate that during the transatlantic slave trade, 40 billion cowrie shells were brought to Africa. 40 billion cowrie shells. What we think of as authentically African is, in fact, most of the shells that you see in African art are, in fact, there because of the slave trade. In the regions where most of the slaves that were brought to the, what becomes the United States, cowrie shells, in fact, represent about 40% of the value of the goods that Europeans use to purchase slaves. This cowrie shell is fascinating in terms of the way it represents this global trade in slaves. This is a cowrie shell dug up from, Monticel from Jefferson's Monticello estate. It's worn down on two edges because it was being an archaeologist here, you found a cowrie shell and it's got two bites on the edge. What do you think it was used as? It's been worn down by something. What? False tooth? One guess. It's a necklace. Absolutely, okay? Worn by an African slave brought to, Mont to Jefferson's Monticello estate. We often think in the United States of a triangular trade, right? It's a very neat system. Finished goods go from Europe to Africa, slaves are brought here, rum's brought back, right? Perfectly neat triangular trade. And it's true that a few ships did that. But in reality, the triangular trade only reflects the American participation in it. We think of it because we're Americans. But the global slave trade is not triangular at all. It's cowrie shells from the Maldive Islands. It's fabrics from India. It's manufactured metal from Mamluk, Egypt. All of this huge global trade. And the Africans are savvy buyers. They know what they want, and they're able to insist upon the prices. OK, so let's go back. I promised that I would talk about why the peculiar institution of slavery wasn't nearly as peculiar as we thought, thought it was. Slavery exists in Africa long before the Europeans, but it exists everywhere. In fact, the entire time of the transatlantic slave trades, there are as many slaves being trafficked within Africa as are being shipped to the New World. If there were 13 million slaves being sent to the New World from, the, from West Africa, there's about 13 million being used in West Africa. And it works out because Africans are preferring women for domestic work 
agricultural work, while the European purchasers of slaves want men. But about as many slaves leave Africa from East Africa, Central Africa, to the Islamic lands. That is, as much African DNA travels to India and the Islamic Middle East as goes to America, the Caribbean, South America. There's not as many each year, but it starts earlier and lasts longer. And so my students ask, Mr. Smarty Pants, where are they then? Why don't we have visible communities of people of African descent in the Islamic Middle East? What happens to them? Under Islamic law, the offspring of a union between a slave and a master is free. Moreover, once a slave woman gives birth to a master's child, she becomes she occupies a new legal status, what's known as Uma al-Walid, mother of the boy, and she cannot be sold. And bit by bit, we lose that visible descent from Africa. But if we're going to think about, in a truly diverse, multicultural world, the African diaspora, it's Baghdad as much as it is Barbados. It's just not visible. And so there is no population in India, in Syria, that says, I am of African descent, tell me my history of the slave trade. But the slave trade is there nonetheless, okay? You need to think about the two wings of the African slave trade. Now, earlier, we talked about the Songhai Kingdom. I was very impressed that you guys know your history. This is fabulous, right? Ghana, Mali, Songhai, in addition to being American history teachers, you're clearly global history teachers as well. I want to talk about the end of the Songhai Kingdom. We often think of Europeans as the force that devastates the classic West African kingdoms. But in reality, the last of the West African kingdoms is knocked out not by a European force, but by another African force, with striking parallels to the Spanish experience in the Caribbean. I want to draw parallels here between the end of the Songhai Empire and the Caribbean with Spain. A powerful force in the 16th century in West Africa was the Saidi Kingdom in what is now Morocco. They were separated by a sea from a huge source of gold in West Africa. Just like the Spanish were separated with gold by a huge sea to South America and the Caribbean, okay? It's a huge body of sea, here sand, for the Spanish it's water, to a fabulously rich land that they know about, okay? So every time I do this, you're gonna say, just like the Spanish, all right? So the Saidi Empire, under a guy known as Muhammad al-Mansur in 1590, sets out to cross this huge body of water, just like the Spanish, to conquer the lands of gold, just like the Spanish. In a huge, dangerous four-month crossing with 9,000 camels, not like the Spanish, <laughs> um, and metal weaponry, arquebuses and cannons, just like the Spanish, overthrows the native kingdom, sets up plantations, exploits the native population for gold, and bit by bit establishes a mestizo population. They interbreed with the local natives, just like the Spanish, okay? And 
We give the Europeans too much credit here for changes in Africa. The weapons that destroy the Songhai Empire don't come from Europe. They come from Muslim Ottoman Turkey. This is an arabesque from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They had about 60 of them and six cannons that came from England. The arquebuses, pretty destructive. It is, however, the cannons that win the day at the Battle of Tobindi in 1591, which destroys the last of the great African kingdoms, but not because the cannons hit anybody. The cannons wildly misfire, miss their target, scare a huge herd of cattle that then stampede from behind the Songhai troops. They have to panic. The Battle of Tobindi is over, and the Saidi Empire wins, and that's it for the great grassland kingdoms of Africa. This has a profound impact on European visions of Africa, because that means by the time the Europeans are in the interior of Africa, there is no great kingdom for them to encounter. In the 14th century, there had been, and Europeans were well, well aware of fabulously wealthy kingdoms in Africa. This is the Majorca Atlas from 1325, and here's a portrayal of Mansa Musa, okay? Famous for um, his wealth. In fact, when he goes on, Mecca, on Hajj to Mecca, he travels distributing gold throughout North Africa and the Islamic Middle East, producing inflation because he's spending so much money. But look in 1325 how the Europeans portrayed him. Just like a European ruler, all the symbols and trappings of his status, just with the exception of his skin. Okay? But by the time the Europeans get into the interior of Africa, there is no great kingdom on the order of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai that had been there previously, because the last one is knocked out, again, not by Europeans, but by North Africans. And not with European weaponry, but with Ottoman weaponry, just like the Spanish.